Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. And we're delighted to welcome you back at our seminar series, which are all for one and one for all, public seminar series on mental health in academia and industry. All for one and one for all talks will shine the light on and discuss mental health issues in academia across all levels, from students to faculty, as well as in wider society. Our speakers include academics, organizations, and health professionals whose work focuses on mental health. Live Q&A sessions will be held after each talk. And for live webinar schedule, please, be, please visit uh, Lashwell Lab website and the link you will find in the description, as well as follow us on Twitter uh, with the handle at Lashwell Lab. And also feel free to post your questions and thoughts uh, as we go along and we will share them with our speaker. Today's talk is hosted by Professor Hilal Lashuel and me, Galina Limorenko, and we're happy to welcome Professor Martessa Mahmoudi to discuss bullying in academia. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's webinar. And uh, let me start. And so although academic bullying has become a topic of great interest in the last few years, it remains a topic that people are shy, uncomfortable, or reluctant to discuss or address, both at the individual and institutional levels. According to the US-based Workplace Bullying Institute, 30% of Americans are bullied at work, most are, and, and slightly that the statistics are similar in Europe. Therefore, we decided to put the spotlight today on this topic and academic bullying, why it happens, how it happens, how we recognize it, and what we can all do to eradicate it. In the recent years, we have seen more effort to address academic bullying through surveys and actions, targeting mainly students, postdocs, and early career researchers. Very little has been done to address academic bullying targeting faculty and staff in the workplace, or to address how the current value system and culture in academia contribute to abusive behaviors in academia. 
most measures taken by universities are usually reactive than preventive. For some, the definition of bullying or what constitutes bullying is not always clear, as it's not always easy to recognize from a single action or a series of microaggressions. Does a one-time abusive act constitute bullying, or it only applies to sustain display of hostile verbal and nonverbal behaviors toward another person or a subordinate? To help us understand what constitutes bullying, how to recognize it, and how best to deal with it, we are very fortunate to have with us today one of the leading champions and experts on this topic, Professor Murtaza Mahmoudi. He's an assistant professor of radiology and precision health program at Michigan State University. Prior to coming to MSU, he was an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Harvard Medical School. His specific research interests include nanomedicine and regenerative medicine for, preventive, for prevention and treatment of life-threatening condition. Is among the 2018 most highly cited researchers as reported by the Clearvate Analytics. He's one of the leading figures in academia that have championed this cause of increasing awareness about bullying in academia and has invested a great deal of time and efforts to systematically document the nature and extent of academic bullying behaviors, examining who are the primary targets and perpetrators, as well as the response to the outcomes of bullying in the specific context of academic science. Professor Mahmoudi was himself, as he will tell us later, a target of academic bullying. He and Saya, Shaya Amili Hajibi founded the Academic Parity Movement, a nonprofit organization that aims to make the academic world an equitable, accepting, and a safe environment. This organization works to uproot academic bullying, discrimination, and violence by empowering students, postdocs, and early career academics themselves with the tools to defend their most basic rights. He has authored many, many influential articles on the topics that have been published in many journals, including Nature and others, and are widely read, circulated in social media and among academics and cited by many. He has also been interviewed by many mainstream media. The latest interview featuring his work was in Financial Times last week. And he also authored a book on a brief guide to academic bullying. His work um, has helped put the spotlight on this issue and create more opportunities to discuss and understand this problem and what we can do about it. And this webinar is only one example of that. Thank you very much for being with us, Professor Mortaza, and we look forward to your lectures and a very interactive and thought-stimulating discussion afterwards. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Alal, for the very generous uh, introduction. Hello, everyone. It's a great honor to be here with you today. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about the uh, root causes and possible solutions to the uh, academic bullying in higher education. So my research is uh, basically um, has uh, three arms. The first one is nanomedicine, which I basically uh, uh, more interested in uh, understanding the biological identity of nanoparticles and how basically biosystems see and react to nanoparticles. 
The second part of our research is regenerative medicine, where we basically are focused on uh, developing regenerative uh, like biomaterials for cardiac regeneration and wound uh, healing applications. And the last part is social sciences, where uh, we are basically more focused on gender imbalances in our science backyard and also the issue of academic harassment in general and academic bullying uh, specifically. So the first question always is that what is abusive behavior? What is academic bullying? So in a general and lay uh, phrase, the academic bullying and harassment is a violation of human uh, rights in a lab setting. And it basically covers a wide range of actions which are considered as bullying and harassment in, in a workplace, every workplace. Uh, when we look at academia, we have some additional actions. For example, uh, a person may give like unfair recommendation letter. They may threaten targets. They may basically unnecessarily like uh, strengthen their lab stay or basically uh, ban their publications or uh, try to kind of threaten them for their uh, career like development and force targets basically to sign away their rights. And at institutional level, it means that institutions basically cover up for uh, bullies can't have like a specific plan to help uh, targets and basically uh, encourage code of silence for targets. And at some point, basically uh, gang up against target, which we know, which we know the fact as like academic mobbing. The main issue is that it's an age-old issue. We had that from Einstein time all the way to to the like the current uh, year, which we are basically uh, most concerned about. So uh, a good example is that when Einstein basically mentioned his ideas on relativity, there were uh, like the author. Uh, there were like hundred people that. Uh, gathered together and wrote a book about like Einstein ideas out of prejudice and denial and basically tried to ridicule the ideas. And when asked about Einstein, about the book, he mentioned that why uh, hundred, hundred authors, if I were wrong, then one would have been enough. So I think he was pointing out to the issue of academic mobbing, which is, which we know it as a, like a ganging up against targets to get. Uh, like today. Uh, we can consider that all the way to the recent scandal of Eric Lander at uh, White House. So you can see basically the academic perpetrators can be like everywhere. They may do things for a long time. And uh, the sad reality and unfortunate reality is that we still deal with this issue in our science and nothing has been like solved. And we are basically seeing growing incidences of academic bullying with different types. So now the main question is that why we couldn't address this issue in a robust and timely manner. So the first issue is that unfortunately our research is kind of set up for bullies to thrive. And we also make a fertile ground for many perpetrators to use bullying as a career tool which is uh, mostly derived by a power differences that they have and the support that they get from institutions because most of them are highly funded 
and uh, universities basically don't have uh, kind of enough interest to basically fairly consider that the basically incidences of academic bullying. The other problem is the lack of robust educational material. Uh, many people basically don't know actually what is academic bullying, what, uh, what behaviors needs to be revised or modified or fixed. Uh, many behaviors may be common in a specific like university cultures, for example, in like high rank universities, uh, researchers may work 24 seven. It may be okay from that particular culture or it seems okay. But uh, in the presence of like a proper and robust educational program that defines a clear line between academic freedom and academic bullying, I think I think that uh, that makes uh, like everything clear for targets and basically uh, people at the higher power to basically understand the differences and and basically make that uh, make that like clear that bullying uh, bullying uh, cannot academic freedom basically cannot be used as a backdoor to justify bullying behaviors. The other problem is too much emphasis on academic index. If we look at like social medias, most of the scientists basically use H index number of publications, IF as a, as a career goal. So this is not a good thing. And based on the good hearts law, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So we need to also ensure that we have a proper educational uh, like programs to define that academic in indexes are just a measure and not a, like a goal. The other problem is the helpless nature of uh, targets and also lack of insight of like institutional insights on the long-term uh, cost of academic bullying. For example, Duke University got fined by NIH for over $100 million for falsifying clinical data back in 2013, uh, which basically uh, it was defined that bullying was also, was also involved in that data falsification. So now what is the difference between academic freedom and academic bullying? So academic freedom means that um, Everyone in a scientific realm basically can do any research in any direction that they want and draw any conclusion without uh, fear of reprisal or retaliation. Uh, they can basically criticize each other uh, works, uh, but not basically attacking their dignity. Um, I always uh, basically uh, say that as a good example that like Michigan State University hired me for my works in nanomedicine and regenerative medicine, but they don't prevent me from like researching academic bullying. So this is basically one example of academic freedom. Academic bullying on the other hand means like uh, violation of uh, authorship, intellectual property, and like in a wide uh, term, if I want to use the academic credit, whatever it is, then trying to isolate someone or basically gang up against the target or basically threaten them to get uh, what a perpetrator wants. And uh, like uh, doing retaliation if someone basically speaks up, which is one of the major issues that we are basically currently uh, facing.
The other problem is that unlike other workplaces, academic bullies are very clever. They basically know how to leave no trace based on their actions. Even in some serious cases, we see that bullies basically try to ask targets to sign away their like academic credits, including their like authorship in papers and their uh, their like uh, contribution in intellectual properties. And the sad fact is that those behaviors are more targeted to minorities and international students because they lack like uh, family support and they may also face uh, cultural and language barriers as well. So the other issue is the lack of uh, robust law in the uh, field of academic bullying. For example, in US, I had a chance to interview with um, over 100 lawyers. The message was uh, easy. Academic bullying is, uh, uh, is basically unethical, but it's not illegal unless it gets basically connected to uh, racism or sexual harassment or things like that. Other basically countries have different laws, but the thing is that we lack uh, strong law against academic bullying. Recently, researchers try to basically connect academic bullying to human rights and basically make it lawful. It's still in progress, but as of right now, we don't have like a strong uh, law against academic bullying. The other problem is the lack of psychological knowledge. We now understand that there are huge kind of side effects that uh, basically uh, targets experience. These are long-term side effects. According to uh, one science article, it could go for a couple of decades even, and uh, it may end up with like physical um, kind of uh, disease as well, including cardiovascular disease. But at least from the mental side of that, we don't have exact knowledge and exact like path to basically heal targets. The other problem is the lack of fair and unbiased internal investigations in the universities. Um, and there are many reasons for that. The first reason is that uh, the members of the investigation committees uh, basically are not accountable for the actions. There's no auditing system over them. Universities' reputation is on stake. And the options that universities basically want to provide to targets are limited. In most cases, the only thing that they provide is changing the lab in the same department, which basically doesn't solve the situation. Bullies have connections. They have been in the universities for a long time. They have connections. They can gang up against targets. And targets are helpless by their nature. The other problem is willing to tolerate the situation among the targets. For example, imagine if... Uh, Someone is doing uh, their PhD, and then they spend like three years in a particular lab. All of their publications and basically their uh, kind of degree depends to one person. So they try basically to tolerate the situation. They have fear of retaliation over their careers. They uh, fear basically about the mobbing. And the other problem for international students is the like the fear of visa cancellation. Uh, and the other issue is that the outcomes always, almost always remain confidential. So no one has access to 
who are the investigator investigation committee members based on what documents they get basically certain decisions. However, based on some reports, which are the tips of the iceberg that get to the media, we understand that those kinds of things happens. Almost always perpetrators basically get along and get supported by universities while targets have no uh, no basically way but to leave the lab. So in this situation, what targets can do? Fight, flight. Unfortunately, studies show that they only tolerate the situation and have to deal with the huge side effects. The sad reality is that those side effects uh, are not only for targets, they also uh, affect people of the circle of the influence of targets. For example, if a target is a medical doctor, it's working in a, like a hospital system, even their medical decisions can be affected. So patients can also be affected by bullying and harassment behaviors. So many people basically try to address academic bullying in different ways. For example, individuals, including researchers, including uh, like journal reporters, try to uh, increase awareness about the issue in any specific fields. For example, people um, uh, conducted research and published the outcome of their research. For example, here is one of the one of the issues that uh, like the investigators considered the, like the burnouts in surgical like residents and uh, they basically consider how harassment, racism and basically discrimination affect that. Or reporters that basically uh, covered the issue of academic uh, bullying that basically reached to the media. Many lab members also published about the issue of academic bullying in different journals for the sake of increasing awareness. We have also conducted like uh, a global study on academic bullying. We wanted, we were very interested in understanding the contextual behavior of academic bullying and its frequency in different disciplines. And we basically gathered over 2000 response and then we basically analyzed the data. We also received over 700 narratives, which we made the context, contextual analysis. And what happens, basically the main result was that out of people that basically experience uh, academic bullying and harassment, 71% of those try to use code of silence. And the main reason for not speaking of is retaliation and the lack of example of successful considering of academic incidences by the same university. And even for those that basically complained, only 8% found the outcomes uh, fair. And uh, most of them basically what they got was changing the lab in the same institution. So um, a few months ago, Nature got part of the results of our study basically for the sake of comparing what contextual behavior would look like for international students. And like I mentioned, the outcomes is that, in, is that international students, because they have like larger gap of uh, power differences, they get more targeted. So what is the reason for that uh, like uh, uh, large number of targets for the fact that large target uh, number of targets use the code of silence? The first one, like I mentioned, is the lack of successful examples. 
many of the cases that reaches to media shows that paper, perpetrators basically uh, were conducting bullying behaviors for decades. Institutions received over 100 complaints. Nothing happens until it gets to the media and get, the case gets very serious. Then institutions finally take action against perpetrators. The other problem is the fear of retaliation and lack of resources that targets can basically seek. Targets can't, according to their responses, they can't find the trustable resources within the institutions. So some of these uh, basically targets stories about like what they feel about the, like the internal investigation by institutions has been covered by uh, Science Magazine. We also have done a analysis on like discipline-specific response to academic bullying and basically to the contextual behaviors of the bullying. And the outcome is very interesting. Actually, engineering field shows to be the worst in like uh, in uh, in having perpetrators and basically having. Uh, various types of uh, academic harassment. And, and there, are, there are important messages from those uh, like uh, studies. One message is that for the educational like uh, um, programs, we need to consider the role of specific disciplines because they have different culture and the type and uh, contextual behavior of bullying would be different between like different uh, uh, disciplines. The other major stakeholders that can basically contribute to increasing awareness are journal editors and publishers. And uh, we have like three topics that no matter of the journal scope can affect the scientific integrity and the organizational health, which are imbalances in diversity, sexual harassment and academic bullying. One of the main issues that journal editors basically have concerns when they want to consider reports of academic bullying or sexual harassment or racism is that the the topic is out of the scope of their journals. Uh, We basically try to to basically uh, make that impression that those uh, topics, regardless of the scope of the journals, may be useful for their audiences because they can affect scientific integrity in many ways. The good news is that, like after the case of the George Floyd in the U.S., uh, ACS Applied Materials and Interfaces from American Chemical Society published a piece in uh, a title basically confronting racism in chemistry journal. And f- a few days after, other journals published the very same thing for the sake of increasing awareness. So this means that journal editors basically gets understanding on the importance of the issue and they basically try to, to consider those concepts. We also considered like the uh, role of gender imbalances in, in um, like uh, nomination process uh, among uh, Nobel uh, Prize laureates. And we published the data in Lancet. They basically found out that uh, basically female scientists receive less nomination than 
like male scientists. And in some cases that they have received more nominations, the odds that they could basically win Nobel Prize uh, was higher. We published that in Lancet. Again, it was out of the scope of the Lancet or for the chemistry people. Angevante is one of the journals in the chemistry, but uh, they were kind of open to consider like the fact that basically they can, they can also consider bullying uh, issues in their journal. So we have some actions here and there. The issue is that they are not effective. And uh, I guess one of the good example on showing why they are not effective maybe uh, could be the, like the very recent US National uh, uh, Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine on Sexual Harassment, which they mentioned that despite of the educational materials and also a strong law force against uh, like sexual harassment, there are little evidences that uh, basically those actions are significantly reduced in academic setting. And that was very interesting message. From our point of view, the reason is that we lack collaborative actions or integrated functioning among um, involved stakeholders. Um, like I mentioned, institutions by themselves may have limited uh, like interest in addressing academic bullying or doing like fair, uh, fair investigation process. One of the main reason is that like the uh, perpetrators bring huge funding to the university. So imagine if the funding agencies basically gets to the, uh, to the equation and basically ask institutions to reveal the anti-bullying records of the perpetrators, then the story would be different. And we have example of that, a welcome trust from UK. They basically uh, got the funding from one of the uh, famous biologists in University College London. Or if we have policymakers get to the equation and they basically consider bullying records as a university or institution's ranking, that would be very helpful. Uh, they actually help institutions to take, like I mentioned, better actions against academic bullying. We also need to kind of modify the, the measures that we have for scientific ranking because those kind of ranking are being used uh, like uh, uh, as a goal, not, not as a measure, which is harmful to the scientific uh, community. The other entity that can form is a, like a global committee that they have like access to the incidence of academic bullying and they can audit them and make the internal investigation committee kind of accountable for the decisions. Uh, like I mentioned, even in the scandals of academic bullying, we barely see any statement from members of the investigation committee. Why? they didn't get proper action over 100 complaints, why the perpetrators could survive for decades in, a, in the same institution. So such committee, basically such global committee can audit the reports and basically make the member of the investigation committee kind of accountable. And we have the same like committee in science. For example, almost all of the journals now following the uh, co-paper procedure in terms of 
like uh, considering um, allegation of uh, like academic misconduct or data falsification. So there's a very unique guidelines and strategies on how to basically address those. So to summarize basically um, the, the root causes and basically what we can do on, on in the field of academic bullying. Um, um, so as a scientific community, as a building block of the scientific community, all of us can do something. We can basically uh, increase awareness about like academic bullying. We can create clear uh, line between academic bullying and academic freedom. We can educate ourselves if we don't know what academic bullying is. Um, we can help like the, um, the resources outside the universities can be like considered as independent resources. Uh, we can help or encourage formation of a global committee that can basically have access to the uh, to the reports of academic bullying within the university. And there are some other things like ORCID or digital like bullying indicator. We also need to uh, basically demand universities that at least for the, for the validated cases, those data needs to be available to public. Institutions can do a lot. Like the first thing is that when you look at the university's policies against academic bullying, they are perfect. Uh, they encourage a speak up. And uh, basically the, the portion of the people that spoke up, they see like different uh, things in actions. So guidelines are good, actions are not supportive. And uh, it's very unfortunate that uh, what we currently see is that perpetrators are, are basically kind of funded by public money because institutions have like lawyers have many resources for the sake of their reputation or if uh, basically something from legal points happens to them. And because at some point the interest of perpetrators and universities are kind of intertwined, the perpetrators are being supported by public money. This needs to be stopped. The other problem is that Almost for all universities, we lack example of successful investigation of academic bullying. Uh, we barely can see an institution that show that, okay, we have received this number of incidences and at least for one of them, we made a proper investigation. This is what happened to the target. This is what happened to the perpetrator. We need those examples to make a trust for targets to speak up and make a clear message and direct message to perpetrators that they basically are accountable for their actions. And they can do other things, including like uh, doing, um, incorporating educational materials to address academic bullying or make a proper monitoring for the uh, PIs that receive like uh, frequent complaints from targets. And the last part is to providing resources to heal targets. It is very important, like abusive parenting. If the children remain unhealed, there's a great risk that they would be abusive parents as well when they get to the parenting position. So we have the same thing here. So the institutions should stop being uh, bullying factories.
And the funding agencies, like I mentioned, they have a great role. They can basically make a zero tolerance policy. They can ask uh, institutions to basically provide the anti-bullying records of the uh, PIs, and then they can basically uh, make a clear and significant contribution to solve the issue. So in this uh, situation, we founded Academic Parity Movement in 2019, and the main aim was to basically show that the same human rights that apply outside the lab also apply inside of it. And uh, we had like uh, three uh, goals. The short-term goal was to increase awareness. The mid-term goal, which starts from next year, is to basically empower targets. We are basically doing some fundraising to, um, to help targets to get legal advice and also psychological help. And the long-term goal is that to make a platform that finally all of the stakeholders can do the integrated functioning to basically address this issue, not in guidelines, but also in real actions. And we have like advisors from different fields, from different universities, we have a pleasure to have Dr. Herring from EPFL in the advisory board as well. So the reason is that we need to have insights from like different fields, different university culture and different basically countries to develop the required like guidelines and appropriate strategies to address this issue. And so far, we basically uh, were focused on increasing awareness. We have published over like 50 articles in top tier journals to basically get the message to the wider like audiences. We provided informal advice for over 100 targets. And we recently started target the story series where we basically cover anonymous stories of uh, like targets that can be used for other basically people that are experiencing academic, experiencing academic bullying and harassment. And those stories uh, basically will be uh, narrated by one of our uh, uh, storyteller editors. So thank you so much for, for your time and consideration. And uh, I'm looking forward for a, for a uh, discussion about the issue. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's absolute pleasure. It's so informative and uh, you touched on every aspect. So I'm looking forward to discussion. So I was wondering if we, we can start with thinking about the targets. And it's really interesting that you actually call tar them targets, not victims. Um, can, can you just tell us why is this and how significant is the perception of targets within society? Because sometimes they can be called derogatory terms or they can be told just get over it or you're imagining it. Right, the, the victim actually um, has kind of a weakness in it. So we basically try to use targets because in many cases, the person, they don't have anything, uh, they don't do anything wrong. They just get targeted because of a specific condition and situation that they have. For example, um, we have like kind of uh, reports from junior faculties. They receive most bullying behaviors when they are over successful in their careers because many people in the same department may not like to have 
like uh, those people that basically go to the fast track and basically remove the kind of the power differences that exist between the department culture. So that's why they target that person. So that person didn't do anything wrong. Based on the performance, uh, they get targeted. So uh, we actually, from the psychological point of view, after like... uh, uh, consultation with uh, various experts in the field, we basically get to the conclusion that targets is uh, is the best word uh, to basically uh, name the like the people that experiences academic working. Excellent. So then, thinking about the targets and coming forwards about their situation. And uh, we have a question as well. So how do you ensure that if abused or bullied, you can, uh, you and you decide to complain that things won't backfire on you? As mentioned in the presentation, uh, bulliers have connections or people in authority. Right, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I wrote a piece in Nature Human Behavior about uh, like, what needs to be done, at least from the from the uh, lessons that I've learned through my own case and also many cases that we have considered in the academic parity movement. Uh, so one thing is that prior speaking up, you need to document everything as much as you can. And you need to look for other people that basically experiencing the same thing because the bullying behavior is not is is something that happens frequently and it's not targeted to one person in the lab so if you are basically uh, working in a toxic environment you are not the only one that experienced that so you can basically look for other people that are experiencing the same thing because the the um, kind of collective power is always better than like uh, one source of report. So when you think about like speaking up, it's better to together, together find like other targets in the field as well. And my recommendation always to the people that are in the US is to go and consult with ombuds offices because ombuds offices are in independent like organizations so they don't re- they don't have any connections to the department. So there's no chance that like the PI get aware. And when I say PI, you can basically um, consider also in department like level at the faculty level, department chair or any person that are at the at the higher part of the power difference. They don't get informed about like those uh, those consultations. So those offices basically helps people to understand whether what they're experiencing is academic bullying, actually, and not academic freedom or not misunderstanding in communication. And then they can also provide information about the options that a target may have. And basically what was the outcomes of the other complaints within the university culture. So basically the person can empower themselves from the useful knowledge, whether they they decide to go to like a formal complaint or not. But I always have uh, like one key uh, recommendations for people who want to speak up and that's to have a plan B. Because in the current situation, 
and based on what I said, it's not very likely that even your allegations is valid, you get like uh, adequate support from the institute. That's a sad reality, but uh, this is the way it is. And uh, the other thing to consider is that when you want to speak up, you need to put your guard up. <laughs> and the reason is that many of your friends may turn into because, because what happens, like I mentioned, bullies have connections. So other people in the lab may have other things to compromise. So when it comes to the complaint, formal complaint and investigation process, you may lose your friends. Mm -hmm. So you need to be really careful. You need to like have plan B uh, and document everything. Yeah. Allow me to jump on this, uh, Galena, for a second, because, you know, we've talked about the target, we've talked about the perpetrator, we've talked about the system, but we have not talked about the community where this exists. Right. right. So when we talk about students and postdocs and the early careers, one could argue that they have so much to lose. They're equal in terms of sometimes being afraid to... To, to stand up for somebody else or even bring the issue to the attention of the person who's committing this or this. But when we take this one step higher and we talk about sort of bullying at the level of staff and faculty, I mean, you, you, you have a community and part of that community, you could, you know, they're tenured faculty, they're stable. They're, it's also very rare from the examples that I've read where, where, people feel that that community, we're talking about institutions of academic freedom and institutions where you get security to be able to speak up and do whatever you want. But the reality is no one wants to get involved. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's also the culture, you know, in, in, in academic, unfortunately, when it comes to these things, there is a sense of selfishness and there's a, there's a sense of prioritizing what's in my interest because the standing up for somebody would also put you on the front line with with that power differential, right? Because then you become. Uh, so I'm just curious if if you have in in your work if you have looked at that dimension, you know, which is you know why is this community and and, I, and here I'm talking about again faculty stay silent in many of these issues and there is no bottom-up action it's actually right. you know, when it comes to bullying when it comes to mental health the main driver for change are the young people it's not the senior people in the university right and exactly so what i think basically is that i mean my main motivation basically came from the fact that i wrote the first piece to nature back in 2018. It was a letter to editor about like the um, international students who are more vulnerable to like uh, bullying behaviors and the lack of uh, uh, like robust reporting strategy and system within the universities. It was few paragraphs. Uh, the amount of feedback that I've got from that small piece was way higher than all of my 200 papers in nanomedicine and regenerative medicine. So then I thought with myself that like we are scientists, 
Why? Because we want to make a world a better place for everyone. And the mission statement of being a scientist is like honesty, integrity, and things like that. So I think all of us as a building block of the scientific community need to be responsible about this issue, responsible and responsible about this issue. So many of the people are neutral right now because they may think that, and you are right, you, you can't support someone or speak up for someone with the, without the risk of being targeted yourself. So again, I say, if we all feel responsible and responsible, then what happens is that we have a collective power mm-hmm. and nothing happens for us. So in some universities that we see that people basically try to not use code of silence when they witness something, it seems that perpetrated. those are basically the, the thing that comes to the media. Those are the stories that basically institutions doesn't have anything to do but to address that. And it's not limited to academia. I mean, what, what we are seeing, at least in political side, is also the same thing. When many people tries to basically be against something that is not ethical or fair, then basically increasing awareness and being responsible about that issue makes the people in charge to finally take action. So it seems that the, 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 the long-term sustainable solution like to many of these type of problems is some sort of a cultural change, right? So it's not just a system because the system, as, we, as you have highlighted repeatedly, and as we all know, is, is, is a system, it's responsive, it's not proactive. Right. Even when it's putting, you know, uh, instruments and mechanisms in place, it's that the purpose of this is to try to protect the institution. And also, I mean, I think there is a genuine interest in trying to protect individuals, but there is no deep thinking about long-term sustainable solution in terms of how do you change the culture and eliminate the drivers? Right. And it gets me to, to another point, which is I'm, I'm curious about what we do. So is it always obvious to people, you know, given that in academia, you know, most people who take on faculty position for the first time have received zero training, very little training in management. It's not the reason you're hired, right? It's not the reason you select people because they have management skills and usually you have to learn on the job get at it you know and uh, so is it always obvious to people that they're actually committing these acts you know are, are there periods where you know there are people who are by nature that's who they are and and there are people you know, by lack of experience or lack of sensitivity or, uh, you know, due to cultural differences may are not aware uh, that, you know, they, they you know, they, they may be committing these repeated microaggression or events that in their eyes, they may not be big, but in the, in, the, in, the, in the person who they're receiving and they can accumulate. Is it, or is it always obvious? That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. And because that leads me to the point where you know, the training and the educational component is so important. Exactly. Yeah. 
So I think sometimes the lab, because like, like you mentioned, educational is one of the pillars in like addressing this issue. And wherever we have a strong law behind that like uh, particular action, institutions basically implement education. For example, education and sexual harassment are now being implemented and, and executed in many, uh, I think almost all of the universities, at least in the US. So every staff member or faculty or students needs to pass a training like uh, uh, courses on the sexual harassment. So um, at least from my point of view, the only way to, to effectively change the system is to have different components and stakeholders to work together. For example, if the lawmaker makes a strong law behind academic bullying, then educational material would come by itself because institutions have no other options to make that happen. If funding agencies comes, because one of the major interests of universities to cover up for bullies is the money that they bring to the university, either from industry or from like the funding agencies. So if, if the funding agencies get involved and mandate basically anti-bullying records, then the situation would be different. Or one other thing, if we basically have the data of the validated perpetrators out there, then we basically prohibit formation of the serial harasser. Because in many cases that gets to the report, institutions basically get second chance to the perpetrator. They mess up again. They give third chance, goes to 100 chance, and nothing happens. Their behavior doesn't basically don't get get fixed. And it sends negative messages both to the targets that nothing happens to the perpetrators and also to other perpetrators that it is okay to do such a thing. The other angle is that sometimes a person was a target in the past, but they remained unhealed. So one of the unfortunate psychological like phenomena, which is called identification with aggressor, is that in order to heal their internal wound, they unknowingly do the same thing to their students. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm saying institutions needs to have a healing, proper healing strategy to targets. This is important for next generation. And if they understand that the person was a previous target, again, they need to be helped. They need to be healed before they take the faculty positions because then it's inevitable that they do the same thing to their trainees. So this leads us quite nicely into discussion about the possible ways to address it and even like talking about practical ways to address it. So we know that on the institutional level, it's really difficult. So many people try and find the communities on social media, for example, and we can see more and more the hashtag me too when it comes to bullying. But very interestingly, it's often people who start leaving academia and then they go on to uh, kind of put their perpetrator's name on, or at least institution. So what right. kind of, um, of role and significance can these kind of soft powers play? 
I mean, at least from my point of view, and based on like many uh, recent uh, reports from Nature, that basically makes a huge uh, side effect to the science progress. Because like you mentioned, many people leave academia. And then in the lack of like proper addressing to the issue, then we may have issues of cyberbullying because sometimes, although it's like a low portion, but there's a chance that even the person at the higher level of like power did the right thing. For example, you may have misunderstanding of the like the academic freedom. I'm just talking about like the other side of that. And if it's not solved correctly within the institutional problem, it may cause the adverse like cyberbullying by social media to the PI that basically didn't do anything wrong. But in most cases, what we see is that like those behaviors basically uh, starts from the like the higher power to the lower power. And that's why the majority of the cases that we see are like targets that are students or junior faculties or things like that. So again, in the case that the institution's reputation is on the, on the stake, we have several cases that legal actions basically were started against the targets who put those information on the social media. So again, targets are more vulnerable to even the side effects of basically seeking out help and talking to the media rather than a perpetrator. Because when a target speaks up, institutions' reputation is also on the stake. Many lawyers don't even accept to to basically help targets. And the reason is that they know that they need to face to institutions lawyer, which they are very strong and very best in in their fields. So again, all of these things that we are talking about are the in F, are the outcomes and fruits of the inefficient system to build, basically solve this issue. And if all of the stakeholders, like I mentioned, work together, hopefully we don't we don't have to deal with like those secondary or second targeting or second victimization anymore. Yeah, interesting. And you talk a little bit about the root causes of bullying. And I would also recommend our uh, listeners and viewers to go check out your book on the uh, Brief Guide on Academic Bullying. You talk much more. So if we flip the question on its head, what about the people who are good people? They're not bullies. Can we try and promote our sort of academic community to really put forward people who are looking after the staff and put them as an example, for example, for the next generation that we are addressing at least at least it from the root, basically. I think any good examples would be helpful. We lack good examples in, in many directions, like in the outcomes of the investigation committee, in the outcomes of having a healthy environment in lab and how those healthy environments can basically promote everyone. Yeah. It's a win-win situation for everyone, you know, within the within the academic system. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you that those right. examples can mm-hmm. be very helpful for Maybe. for us and also for the next generation. Right. 
So one thing, you know, a couple of things on sort of moving and how to address this issue. You know, more, part of the problem, I think, is, is a lot of these issues such as bullying, mental health, have sort of been segmented per population, right? When in reality, in an academic setting, our life are interdependent and interconnected. Right. You know, as you said, if if there is a correlation, if, if you're in an environment where students are likely being bullied, it's likely that faculty has also been bullied. Right. And, 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 and the solution for changing this besides sort of the culture change is requires a holistic approach where these different stakeholders are not discussing these things separately, where you, know, you promote a culture where people can discuss this freely and where these different stakeholders are, you know, can come in because the, the mental health cost is huge. I mean, if you have a faculty like that or a culture like that, the impact on the individual, the impact on the students. And, and I was wondering whether, you know, in, in the context of faculty mental health, for example, and we have not, you know, I think you've alluded to the mental health cost of, of bullying, but it's probably one that deserves a whole hour by itself. What I found is that the universities are very, not very responsive when you talk about mental health faculty. And what we found is actually the best approach is when we connected, you know, that that mental health, students' mental health is actually dependent on faculty mental health. Because at the end, you know, how you teach, the way you teach, the way you approach your students is influenced by mental health and a very direct impact on, on students' learning as well as their mental health. And then you, 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 you find a champion. And in our case, I think we were lucky to find the, you know, the VP of Students Affairs who makes that connection. And that changes everything because now you have, you know, we, you have a school-wide, at least in, in our school, we now have a school-wide task force that is tackling this globally. You know? So I think in, in, in the same in the context of, of, of bullying is making that connection that this is not a problem that affects one group and therefore does not affect the others. And can I, you know, establishing that interplay between these different groups and the effect suggests that we need a holistic approach, which means we need to come together and finding the people who are willing to champion and make that draw that first line, I think is 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 such a is a critical first step. To, to bring in this, because then when you bring the community, you can discuss, you know, you have the different groups are discussing, you can create uh, avenues for change, you can collectively work to increase awareness, it becomes much easier to share and speak up about these issues. Another topic I wanted to address is, is you know, these issues are usually caught up very late, Right. I mean, every time you have this issue, it lingers for years. People suffer in silence. Um, they're not able to speak for all the reasons. And I was wondering whether there, there are effective measures or that you know of or best practices in other places where you know people are either administrators or colleagues, you know, people are trained to spot when things like this happen and to intervene early before things escalate, because 
you know, it's 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 impossible that this goes by unnoticed. And if somebody doesn't realize, right, somebody needs to tell them. Right. And usually, you know, it's the graduate program, it's the director, the dean, and this, but it still doesn't happen. So, you know, we even have in many places, you have mentoring programs, and they don't seem to be effective in terms of right. uh, dealing with this. So I was curious if what are your thoughts on sort of preemptive measures to tackle this and are there examples of best practices somewhere where this seems to be working? Right. So, uh, I mean, the good examples that I've seen by like basically talking with different universities is that some of them actually understood about the like the long-term costs of academic bullying and harassment. So they started to do some sort of surveys annually the whole university wide with an anonymous manner. So they don't want any like email subscription or things like that. So they get basically response from the community over the years. And then they see like which department or which PI basically has a higher frequency of those reports when it comes to like academic bullying and harassment. And then they basically put a specific monitoring and education to that particular lab. So based on the like the follow-up surveys, it seems that at least from the uh, discussion that I had with many people in like different universities that applied those techniques, the incidences were significantly reduced. So it's a combination of surveying the staff and also targeted educational material to the uh, labs or departments that basically have the more frequent actions of the bullying behaviors. So this is basically one thing that I found very effective. The other thing that targets by themselves, I mean, the, the, the students or the faculties can do by themselves is that to be very proactive about the issue. When a student wants to find a lab for a PhD position, it's good that they basically contact the former lab members. And I always insist the former lab members because they don't have anything mm -hmm. to compromise where the current lab members may have. So you can get a proper feedback that whether the lab has a toxic environment or not. Because like I mentioned, if a person has a, like a tendency to do or show bullying behaviors, it's not for a limited period of time and it's not for one person. So anyone that has a, like a one-year experience in the lab, they can identify the toxic environment. So students can basically identify that prior joining the lab. So the bullies lab after a while gets kind of empty. So they need to revise their behavior. So it, again, it needs the response from a community, being proactive within the community. Okay. Excellent. Well, I think we can round our discussion up and it's for our audience. So if we leave them with maybe two or three takeaways, so what would you say to targets and perhaps people who can sometimes recognize themselves as being in the position of a bully? Yeah, for the targets, I say find, like act early on. When you see bullying behaviors, like Hilal mentioned, don't wait for a long time that you basically have more 
reasons to use code of silence. Ask for help early on. If you have ombud offices or other resources similar to ombud offices, talk to them early on because you get information about like what options you have and what is basically the system that you are dealing with within the university. What happens if you speak up? What happens if you use code of silence? And they then they can basically get the right decisions about the about the options that they have. But the most important thing for the targets that experience like uh, bullying for a long time, always have plan B mm-hmm. before you speak up. This is very important. And the other thing which I found at least from the experience with the academic parity movement is that don't go to any meeting by yourself. If you can't take your dog to the meeting, do that. If you can't take someone to the meeting, do that. And uh, any- you mean, a, you mean as a witness or? A... No, as a support. Or just a support. Yes, as a support. The reason is that the people that are sitting like on the other side of the table, they are kind of expert. They are seeing the case for many years. They may be lawyer in the communications. They basically may have, may use like legal words, legal sentences. So when you want to write something, write a complaint, ask for help. Share your basically stories, get feedback from other people. And the last uh, suggestion and recommendation is that when you complain, insist to get a summary of the investigation committee Mm -hmm. because you need that. If they could validate your allegations, you need to have that in a written format because then it may basically used, maybe used when you want to basically apply for kind of other jobs or your future careers. Insist to get the summary. Yeah, I think it's 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 also important to, to encourage people to, to pursue and take advantage of all resources and possible intervention measures early. In other words, you know, uh, if if you have a mentor, approach the mentor. If if you know if if it's a, a place where it's a systematic, then I think you you it could be a hopeless case. But if it's a place where you feel it's not systematic, I think you know there should be a direct attempt to address the problem directly. If it's not addressed, you seek a third, you know, your mentor or the doctoral program as an in, people can intervene sort of as intermediaries to try to f- form a solution because. There may be cases where this could be solved early. Exactly. Things can escalate and then go out of control, you know, because once you trigger certain processes, you cannot. And then, you know, a lot of things get in mix. So I always encourage people to, you know, if you have your advisor or your boss and you disagree, try to find a third person. Now, there are examples where also your complaints can fall in deaf ears. Exactly. You have, you have to consider what you what you what you want to do, but I think if you can find a way to resolve this, if it's a miscommunication, misunderstanding, mismanagement of expectation, then then maybe it could be solved early. Because you know there are great examples of things that start small and just grow out of control and then uh, escalate. So 
I think it's good to, to, to end on that note in the spirit of always when you have a problem, the first thing to do is try to find a solution. Then I think, as you said, if not, then find the right support that will sustain your effort to, to, to fight it and speak up. And uh, we hope that you know webinars like these and open forums like these you know serve as a good starting point for 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 those people who are going through this to realize that you know they're not uh, alone, you know that uh, there are uh, support organizations like yours that they can reach to and people who are willing to to share their experience and knowledge. And as you said, and as we discussed, you know changing this, eradicating this type of behavior is a collective responsibility. And uh, while the systems are more powerful than the individuals, I think if each one of us can try to do their part, I think we can still make a difference in this. Thank you very much for, for first of all, for everything that you do to, to champion this cause and go out of your way and take out of your time for science to do this. I know, especially in the beginning, that championing these things is not such a popular thing. You know, even within within colleagues and people get sometimes the impression you have nothing better to do, but I think your record speaks for itself on that regard. But it does, it does, you know, it's one thing to champion an issue on a topic, you know, once in an article and there, it's another thing to be persistent. Uh, you know, to constantly, you know, write like you do, to speak up like you do, and to advocate like you do. So uh, we're really grateful to have people like you, and we're grateful for everything that you do. And I do hope to see you in person soon. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Anand, for the generous and kind note, and also for having me. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much, and thank you to our audience, and we hope to see you again.